All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs, and today we are going to be talking about open theism and uh, the end of the timeless God with my guest, Will Duffy and R.T. Mullins. Uh, but some of the questions that we're going to be looking at identifying is, um, what, what about if God knew all future events and choices people would make prior to creating the world? Another question would be, do you still have free will if God uh, could have created the world differently, but specifically chose this world to create? How do these things relate to a comparison of classical theology, um, classical theism versus open theism, and the timelessness of God? If you would, uh, stay with us, and we'll be right back after this clip, and we'll, we'll get right into it. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin to what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them. And they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. All right, so let me get this off of the screen here. Um, I, did, I meant to go through that in the introduction, but... In a couple of weeks, we're going to be going through God, time, and theological ramifications with Drew McLeod and Brian Wagner as well, so keep that in mind. Um, and uh, as you should be able to see our guests up on the screen. We've got Dr. Ryan Mullins and Will Duffy. And uh, I'm going to go through a couple of brief introductions to each one of these guys, and then we'll jump right into it. But um, for Dr. Mullins, Dr. Mullins has got his Ph.D. from the University of St. Andrews. He's published over 30 essays on various topics in philosophical theology related to models of God, philosophy of time, personal identity, the problem of evil, disability theology, the Trinity, and the Incarnation. He's published two books, The End of the Timeless God from Oxford University Press in 2016 and God and, God and Emotion from Cambridge University Press in 2020. Ryan has held research and teaching fellowships at the University of Notre Dame, the University of Cambridge, and the University of St. Andrews, as well as the University of Edinburgh. He also has a podcast called The Reluctant Theologian, where he covers topics ranging from soteriology and atonement to God and time. When not engaging in philosophical theology, he's often found at a metal show. And uh, he's working on a couple new books right now called from Divine Time Maker and, uh, to Divine Watchmaker, and another book, Divine Passibility, uh, A New Defense with Jordan Wesling and John Peckham. And of course, we just mentioned those other two books, The End of the Timeless God and the other being God and Emotion. Uh, so Ryan, welcome to Talking Christianity. It's good to have you on. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. 
I'm looking forward to our conversation, which is going to bring us to our other guest, Will Duffy. Will Duffy, you guys I'm sure are familiar with. You've seen him in debates in the past online uh, with Matt Slake talking about open theism. He's the creator of opentheism.org, where you can find many of his, his and other open theism debates and articles, as well as upcoming events and other videos. You can also comment on their Open Theism Forum, which is at theologyonline.com, or check out their highly Google-ranked article, Is God Outside of Time? There's also a section on opentheism.org that has 33 categories of scripture on open theism, which is opentheism.org slash verses. And you can also find them on Instagram, opentheism.org, and uh, then their YouTube channel, which is opentheism channel on YouTube, where you can subscribe and hit the bell and get notifications for any upcoming videos from them. So, Will, welcome to Talking Christianity. It's good to have you on as well. Yeah, thanks, Josh, for putting this together today. It's good, man. I'm, I've really been looking forward to it. Um, this conversation is, like I was telling you before we went live, um, I don't have all of these, these things worked out, but I'm kind of exploring the different ideas of uh, kind of classic theism and open theism and kind of um, some of the different ways that people have kind of tried to iron out the balance of God's foreknowledge, uh, divine determinism, and free will. And um, these things, I, I don't have my mind wrapped around it all. I don't have my mind made up on where I stand, but I do think that it, um, conversations like this are helpful for me personally um, because it, it, it pushes me, it stretches me, and it gets me to think about things like, um, you know, whether or not I do have free will if God created all, this whole thing, knowing how it was going to be before it even took place. So anyways, um, I think that we'll go ahead and jump into it. Let me switch over here to my notes and uh, see if we can get rolling here. So, okay, my first question is, uh, really, I want to establish what we're talking about. We've already kind of identified it's a comparison of classic theism with open theism, but um, maybe um, maybe we can kind of start there and just identify what the difference would be between classical theism and timelessness to start. So, Ryan, maybe you could kind of give us an idea of what the difference of the two would be, classical theism and the timelessness of God, and then we can move forward and, and see where the conversation takes us from there. Mm -hmm. So so classical theism is a particular model of God. Uh, let me start with the concept of God. So the concept of God is that God is an absolutely perfect being who is like the absolute ground or ultimate ground of reality. Uh, and so a model of God, what it tries to do is identify what does it mean to be perfect. And so it'll tell you whatever God's attributes are that make him perfect, and then what it means for God to be the absolute ground or ultimate ground of reality. So classical theism says God is absolutely perfect in the sense that God's got all the omni attributes. So omniscience, omnipotence, but that's not really unique because lots of other models of God have that. So what makes classical theism unique is its commitment to four divine attributes, which are divine timelessness, divine immutability, impassibility, and simplicity. Um, how they understand how God is ultimate, uh, like the ultimate ground of reality is they're going to say that God freely creates the universe ex nihilo or out of nothing. Open theists typically say that as well. So like like modified or neoclassical theists. Um, but so what's really going to distinguish typically the open theist from like a classical theist is a commitment to those four unique divine attributes, whereas the open theist typically goes, I don't like any of that. I don't want any of those attributes. Um, I'll take all the omnis. Those are great. But timelessness, immutability, simplicity, impassibility, I don't want those. Um, so that's that's kind of like, yeah, that's that's classical theism, at least in a nutshell. Okay. 
Um, now, Will, would you have anything that you wanted to piggyback off of that? Would you agree that those there, those four categories may be something that the open theist would not want to have anything to do with that the classical theist would? Yeah, that's accurate. Um, while there's overlap in these, you know, various claimed attributes of God, uh, they're not necessarily uh, a complete package, though. So I think it's important to point that out. There'll be people who will hold to some and not the others. And then someone like myself would reject uh, all four that Ryan mentioned. Okay. Now, when we're talking about God being the greatest possible maximal being that could exist, um, why wouldn't we include um, attributes such as omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, those sorts of things, uh, the omnis? Why, Why wouldn't we include those sorts of things in the attributes of God when we're trying to consider God as a maximal being? And, and if we don't, does that take away from God being a maximal, maximally great being? Ryan, maybe you could answer that first, and then we'll, I'll get your take on it. Oh, oh, so I, maybe I misspoke. Um, so, so most models of God, when they're giving their analysis of what it means for God to be perfect, they will include those omnis in there. Okay. But what makes a model unique is they, well, if it's going to be unique, it needs to say something that the other models don't. And since omniscience, omnipotence, like, you know, perfect goodness, like, you know, pretty much everyone's like, yeah, yeah, th- that's definitely like, those are great. Those are cool. I like that. Um, so those are like un- uncontested. Um, whereas like the ones that are contested, the ones that are controversial are going to be things like timelessness, uh, impassibility, or if like a classical, the- a, a non-classical theist, like an open theist wants to say, well, God's passable. You know, he, he has, he has, he gets sad sometimes. He suffers. Uh, then those are going to be, like, those are controversial things. I see. Okay. Um, Will, did you have anything you wanted to piggyback off of that? Yeah, when it comes to the omnis, I think the importance there is the definition um, of those terms. And so uh, what I like to do when I'm defining them is I like to add in God's will into the definitions. So, for example, um, you know, omniscience would be defined as God knowing all things that he wants to know. I, I think that's important. Yeah. My theological journey uh, God's will has always played a pretty significant impact into kind of, you know, me looking at these different uh, various views. And so I think defining those is going to be key uh, in these discussions. Yeah. Um, okay. And for the audience sake, um, I do want to let you guys know uh, a couple of things. One word, uh, Will informed me that we're streaming this live across nine different time zones right now. So uh, Dr. Mullins, he is in Scotland, and then uh, Will is in Puerto Rico, and I'm in Kansas City. So we've kind of got a, a long range uh, trying to get this thing live stream. And it doesn't help that I'm not hardwired in through an Ethernet cord. I'm just streaming it over the Wi-Fi, which I just was informed that it would be a lot better for you as the audience if I was uh, hardlined in with an Ethernet cord. So that's my bad. I'll work on that in the future. Uh, but there is going to be a little bit of a delay with the video and the sound, uh, which I'm sure you guys have noticed. But um, and, and Shannon, I know that you put this question in there, and we'll, I do want to let you guys know as well that you'll have a chance to call in at the end. Uh, and I'll put that number up on the screen. You should be able to see it up at the top. Um, the number to, to call in is going to be 816-866-0025 if you would like to do that. Or you could even join the live stream and uh, talk to Will and Ryan live with us. Uh, that link is going to be in the description box on whatever platform 
you're watching this from live. So you should be able to do that. If, if, you, if you don't want to do it either one of those ways, we'll be able to get your questions in as you, as you send them in. So, uh, but this first question, I think it is, it, it might be a good idea to get this out in the open before we really get too far into it. Well, obviously, we're talking about open theism, classic theism, and uh, where we would, how we would identify these things and, and bounce ideas off of um, what, what's, what's the best definition for who God is and the attributes of God. And Shannon, Shannon says, is, is Mullins an open theist? I think we all know Will Duffy is an open theist. Uh, we don't know is, is Ryan. Ryan, are you an open theist? Where do you stand on that? No. So the model of God I affirm is, is usually called neoclassical theism or modified classical theism. So it'll reject one or one or more of those four classical attributes. Uh, and the, I want to reject all four of, of the classical attributes. And then it'll still affirm creation ex nihilo. So it's not going to be panentheism. And it'll affirm foreknowledge. Uh, so it's not open theism. The yeah. way you affirm foreknowledge, though, as a neoclassical theist, it's it's open. Like you could have, you could be a Calvinist, you could be a Molinist, you could be uh, hold up a firm simple foreknowledge. You could hold something called a time ordering account. So you've got some options, okay. but but that's the thing that's going to distinguish it from open theism. Okay, so I do want to get into that because that's where that's where I'm at is trying to wrap my mind around the foreknowledge idea and omniscience. Like, how are these things related? How how is this related to God's omniscience? Because well, I know. I know. Um, just in the last segment, you said you said that God God would be omniscient, but He's omniscient based off of things He's chosen to know. Um, to me, that might be a little bit of a limited definition, and we'll be. I, I do want to unpack these things as we get into it. Um, but I think it, as we were discussing, um, we're discussing classical theism and timelessness to start. What you just described, Ryan, as it's related to panentheism and pantheism, and the and the difference between what you would believe there. Let's start with time. How would you define what time is, and does time only does time exist only if change exists, or can it exist even if change does not exist? So, as I understand time, I would take time to be a natured entity that makes change possible. It's the thing that is the source of moments or instants. And it's the thing that unifies a series of moments, or what you might call like a timeline. Uh, so it's right there in the definition, time is more fundamental than change, because it's the thing that makes change possible. I mean, there are going to be people who, who reject that, who hold, hold to what's called a relational theory of time, that think that time exists if and only if change exists, and that change is just like a relationship between events. But um, I've got reasons for thinking that it's like deeply circular and incoherent. So I usually yeah. reject that kind of view. But, but yeah, I, I think time is this nature entity that makes change possible. Okay. So time is this natured thing that make, makes uh, change possible. I, I think I missed something right at the end there. It makes, uh, mm. so, it, so time is this, this thing that makes change possible. Okay. And it's ordered, yeah. it's sequential. You would agree with that? Uh, well, it's, what, it's what accounts for that stuff, yeah. I see, I see. So it's responsible um, for making those things, yeah. Okay, well, um, how, what would your definition of time be and uh, as it's related to what Ryan just laid out there as it's related to change? Sure. Time is actually very difficult to define. Um, you'll notice when you get into the circles discussing the nature of time and God, uh, they often will avoid defining time and just kind of move on. Yeah. Um, the, the definition that I, that I currently use, uh, which I did not come up with, but I really like it, is that time is the endurance of reality. So my position is that time is an aspect of reality, 
reality similar to math or logic, and uh, that's kind of where I stand at the moment. So, so you would just take the position that it just is, it just exists, um, in that sense, it's just it's just part of reality. Um, and and more specifically, it seems like you would hold the position that there is no future, there is no past, there's just the present, which would kind of transition to our next um, point in the conversation, I think. But would you agree with that? There is no future, there is no past, there's just the present, and that's what time is as related to reality? Yeah, so I am a presentist. Uh, I do hold the presentism. And so absolutely in agreement that the future does not exist, the past does not exist. And I think it's important to always clarify when discussing presentism that even though the past and the future both don't exist, the past did exist, which makes it knowable. And then I would say the future as non-existent would be unknowable. I see. Okay. And um, okay, now, Ryan, when we're talking about time, and uh, you had mentioned panentheism and pantheism, some people would say that time is created. It was, I mean, as related to the Kalam cosmological argument, time didn't exist prior to God creating time and the beginning and those sorts of things, um, which which would create problems if time didn't begin to exist, because then it would be kind of part of who God is or an attribute of God. I don't know where you would stand on kind of the differentiation of whether time was created, whether it's it's a, an attribute of God or um, how that would relate to panentheism and that sort of thing, but but um, where, where do you go with that? Was time created? Was it uncreated? Where do we start that side of the conversation? Uh, so I'm starting to get closer to a view that wants to identify time within, as an attribute of God or some aspect of God, so it would be uncreated. Uh, okay. So, so, but I don't think that entails panentheism because panentheism, part of the story of panentheism is you have to deny creation out of nothing. And I don't deny creation out of nothing. I affirm creation out of nothing. Yeah. So it's not going to be pan, panentheism. Uh, pan, pantheism itself, that's that says God and the universe are identical. Right. Well, uh, I don't know about you, but I don't feel like I'm identical to time. Um, <laughs> and I don't think Will is identical to time. And I don't think yeah. the universe is identical to time, uh, especially because we all have different modal properties. Um, and so, like, I didn't always exist. And on this view, time would always exist. So it can't be... We can't be identical to, to, to time. If, and if time is an aspect of God, then I can't be identical to God. So yeah. this doesn't, yeah, it doesn't entail pantheism as far as I can tell. Okay, so you would take the position that time is uh, uncreated, but it doesn't deny creation ex nihilo. Um, yeah. And that it's, that it's an attribute of God. Um, but I guess my question would be, um, there's an element of time, there's three elements of time, past, present, and future, if, if time is an attribute of God, how does that not place God within a sequential uh, format of, you know, time unfolding or what, 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 will, what will calls a duration of reality? Um, or, or does that make God eternally present in the past, present, and future um, uh, consecutively all at once? Mm-hmm. How, how, would you, how would you look at that side of the conversation? So it depends what kind of moves you want to make with regards to the ontology of time. So the ontology of time is the question, what moments of time exist? And so like Will, I want to affirm presentism and say only the present exists. Yeah. Uh, if you could affirm something else like an eternalist view where all moments in the timeline are actualized or real, they'll equally exist. Nah, I don't like that view. Um, we can go into that later. But so if you're a presentist like, like me, then you would just say a moment of time is the way things are, but could be subsequently otherwise. 
So prior to the universe, there's just one moment, God hanging out by himself, not doing anything. And then the next moment would be God doing something. So if God wants to do something, then he changes and brings about things being subsequently otherwise. So he brings about a universe. What kind of universe does he want to create? I don't know. It's it's up to you. If you want to be a Calvinist, you could say he creates a Calvinist universe. If you want to be an open theist, you could say he creates an open universe. Uh, Is that's kind of so you got a lot of options here with, with this sort of view. Okay, um, now, Will, let's go back to kind of where we started that conversation um, as it was related, <clears throat> as it's related to time. I'm losing my voice a little bit. <clears throat> um, okay, so do you see time as being something that's created, uncreated, as an attribute of God? Um, where do you go with that side of the conversation there? How do you handle that? Sure. Yeah, I, I do not think time is something that's created. Um there are metaphysical realities. I, I mentioned a couple of them already, such as math and logic, um, that I don't think people would say God created. Um, you know, Christians who disagree like to use terms like God is bound by time. And I think those are just, uh, you know, heavy emotional words that they're using uh, to try to frame the conversation. Uh, to where they where they want it to go, but I do think that there are aspects of reality yeah. um, that really, if we you know look at it deeply, are really probably also describing God Himself and God's reality, and so that's kind of where I put time. I see. Okay, now I want to get your guys' take on this. Um, we have got we can take calls and uh, people join in the live stream as we go through this uh, episode or we can wait till the end how do you guys want to do that ryan and will um because we do have a guest that is is wanting to join the live stream and and jump in on the conversation now if not we can wait till the end it's it totally up to you uh, it doesn't matter to me <clears throat> okay yeah i'm good whatever all right that'll work uh let me get scott unmuted and i'm going to add scott i'm going to add you into the live stream here with Will and Ryan. So, Scott, welcome to Talking Christianity. We've got you on, and I'll turn it over to you um, for whatever your question or comment is. Well, I'm glad to get in early. Um, I was expecting a flood of people to um, line up on mass like lemmings to find out just what to think about God and time and all of that. Yeah. But I would like to make a comment. Um, about this definition of time in relation to God's being. Now, I wrote in the, um, the comments that my view would be um, similar to Ryan's in that it would be, the, um, I've used the word duration, that it would be a phenomena of the existence, the conscious existence of God's being. And I suppose... I. Can you hear me still? Yep. Yeah, we can hear you just fine. Yep. Okay. I saw some funny business on my screen. In other words, that God is conscious. He's a living being. Mm-hmm. And that consciousness um, itself, uh, whether you can say it's an ontology or not, um, consciousness is. And for consciousness to be, there must be duration. So whether there's an ontological link there, um, I'm not sure that needs to be answered, but the, but the first principle would be God is conscious, yeah, and there has to be duration. So, 
So yeah, that's interesting. Um, which would which would seem to kind of in my mind go back to the beginning of the consciousness of God, but. I don't know how that would relate to um, kind of a duration of existence as the way that you're defining it. But Ryan and Will, I'll see if I can get your take on that first, Ryan, and then we'll jump to you, Will, if, if that's something that we can address is what Scott's bringing up here between, on the relationship of consciousness to time and saying that it he doesn't seem like it needs to really be defined. Yeah, so there's two different thinkers that would be holding something very similar to what you're describing here. So the first would be uh, uh, Henri Bergson, and then the other one would be J.R. Lucas. And so they try to draw a very tight connection between consciousness and time and duration. Um, and so they're going to say, well, J.R. Lucas says this more clearly than, uh, than Bergson does, that um, because God is a conscious being, that's why time exists. So time is a necessary concomitant or just necessarily follows from consciousness. Um, I want to make time a little bit more fundamental that it's not like it doesn't depend on um, consciousness itself. But I, I would think they'd go together because if I'm making time an attribute of God, well, I want to say his consciousness is also another attribute. So you're still going to get both of them. But yeah, there are there are various thinkers uh, in, um, who, do, who do a lot of weird, serious stuff in philosophy of time who would be just doing something exactly like what Scott's describing. Okay, um, Will. What would your take on that be? As, he, as he's saying, it doesn't. He doesn't seem like it needs to be defined. But uh, if there is an ontology of time, um, then then the duration of time would seem to be related in some way to the consciousness of God. Yeah, I think uh, making you know making the point that God is a living being is important here. Um, succession is. Uh, like oil and water to timelessness. And so I think just looking at maybe God's thoughts and God's thoughts happening in excessive order, which seems very natural to us, uh, would make sense. And yeah. so I, I definitely agree with uh, what Scott is saying. Okay. Scott, let's turn it back to you. Um, where do you want to go on that side? Did they address what, what it is that you wanted to bring up, or is there a follow-up question or comment there? Well, whenever I listen to a podcast with Ryan, I've always got paper and pencil to write down references here. <laughs> That's um, a good idea. Yeah, really. Um, the notion of being created in God's image and likeness, I think, gives us a kernel to work with in which to model uh, what um, God's experience of reality is. Yeah. Um, the word image and likeness are related words, so there's an emphasis there. And so from that kernel, uh, we could take our own experience of consciousness. It implies a before and an after, yeah. and it's linear. So one would test that by projecting upwards and seeing, does this conflict with anything in the biblical record? And so far, I've found a, a harmony there that um, has not challenged me fundamentally to let go of. Yeah. But I'm still in dialogue. You know what? I think that's a, a really good place to, to kind of take that side of the conversation because um, you get a lot of different takes on what it means to be made in the image of God. And some people would even take it so far as to say that our experience is something that is so other than the experience of God that God is almost unknowable to us. 
And and when you when you point out the idea of what you just brought up, Scott, that we we were made in the image and the likeness of God, that it it, it would seem like the reality as we know it is some sort of a revelation of what God actually designed us to be to know him. Um, but I saw you, Ryan, you were you were nodding your head in agreement with what Scott was saying, and I wonder if if uh, there's something more that you had to add on on that side of the conversation. No, I think that's fun. I think what Scott's saying is fundamentally right. If if we're well, if you're committed to Christianity, then you're going to be committed to this idea of the image of God. And if God is so utterly and completely unlike us, then I don't know what it could mean to be made in His image. And so I would think we would lose that aspect of the biblical teaching. Um, and also, when I look at the classical tradition, they really are looking at human nature as a model for for uh, the different kind of perfections that we want to predicate of God. So knowledge, power, goodness, freedom, rationality, all these things that they want to say, yep, God's got that to the maximal degree. What they're doing is they're looking at human nature and saying, this is something that's true about God. And I think that an open theist or a neoclassical theist like me is doing the same thing by going, well, what else would I see when I look at myself? Um, right. Experience, having experiences, undergoing succession. When I exercise my power, I'm not doing one thing and then I am doing something. Yeah. Well, why would God be any different? Uh, so, so yeah. And when then you look at the biblical story, it looks like God kind of changes all the time, mainly because it says he changes and, <laughs> you know, so details. But yeah, so I think, yeah, so I think what Scott's uh, talking about is describing something that I think is a, a part of what, what it looks like to do Christian theology. Not the whole story of Christian theology, but I think it's part of it. Okay. Now, Will, I don't see you uh, disagreeing with anything that Ryan just said there, but uh, maybe you do, or maybe you are in agreement and just want to kind of carry that thought out some more. W- what would you do with that? Uh, no, I definitely agree. Um, some people, <laughs> some people uh, look at this as a problem. I don't necessarily look at it as a problem, but when I decided to take theology seriously, my faith seriously, Christianity seriously, um, I really just I kind of skipped the you know classical theism. I skipped you know what the early church fathers taught, and I really just went straight to the Bible. Um, not opposed to any of that, but that's really kind of where my path started yeah. and, and it's what shaped what I believe today. And so I don't have, you know, a hard grasp on uh, what classical theism teaches. And so that, for better or for worse, was not something I had to get rid of. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Um, Scott, I, I wonder if there's anything else that you would like to kind of carry over from what we just talked about with the image of God and the likeness of God and us uh, being able to know God as it's related to time and timelessness. If not, um, that's totally fine. But if you had something more that you wanted to add, I'll, I'll put the ball back in your court. Yes, please. Yes, please. Um, it seems like we have a, a good uh, agreement with the biblical passage, for instance, in Genesis 22, 12 where Abraham is put into the test of, of killing Isaac. Uh, and in the Hebrew, uh, when God says, now I know that you fear God, that's first person singular. And, the, and it's predicated by a now. So for that to be a truthful representation of who God is, without a parsimony about, well, if he's out of time, you know, that doesn't work. 
If that's a truthful revelation, then that seems to be an authoritative statement that we are bound to address in its fullness and say, uh, there's no going back around and saying, well, he really did know. Yeah. That would mean he's opposite. So that would be my okay. thought. No, that's a good thought. Okay, so in Genesis 22, where God makes that statement, now I know. Um, the classical theist would typically say if you're if you believe that God is taking in information and He's learning, um, then He's not a mac- He's not maximally great. He's not omniscient. Um, now, Will, I know that you've addressed this on OpenTheism.org, uh, and you've talked about this in some of the debates that you've had. I'll, I would like to turn it to you first, and then get Ryan I'll get your take on that. And see if um, if this is one of those things that you would agree with, as it's in the attributes of God, and whether it does um, diminish um, the maximally great person of whether or not God is the the maximally great being, as it's related to omniscience. But will let me get your take on it. I'm probably not wording that exactly right, but this is a great passage to go to for this for this conversation. Yeah, it's great. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to you know maximally great perfect being theology. I think the uh, I think the conversation is difficult because we're talking about something that's very subjective. Um, you know, for example, you know what what is a perfect baby or what is a perfect river? Um, it, it's just very subjective, uh, and so I think that that's an issue. Um, in terms of Genesis twenty two twelve, um, I have a hard time reading and understanding that passage especially considering you know the context of the previous you know 10 chapters in genesis and the reality is is that we have you know abraham which is somebody that god you know really wanted to do something with and abraham essentially you know had that had faith that was strong then he wavered faith that was strong then he wavered and so we see God testing to know, which is something that we see all throughout the Bible. And in Genesis 22, you know, it's a test to know what he would do. And so I think the, the statement now I know is the reality of, of the result of the test. And it's a reality of, of God wanting to learn something and figuring it out. That's good. Okay, and I'll, I'll toss it over to you, Ryan, but I do, before I get your take on that, uh, it looks like Chris, Christopher Fisher says to Mullins, do you affirm the classical definition of omniscience in which God's knowledge is ungenerated, neither within himself nor outside of himself? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't. So, well, okay, there's a couple of aspects here. So first is the typical definition of omniscience is um, that... God knows all the truth values of all the propositions. Uh, and then when you combine impassibility with it, then God's knowledge can't be, um, you know, derived from something outside of himself. So you've got two, so you've got omniscience on the one hand and you've got impassibility doing the work of saying like, God can't be influenced by anything outside of himself. So all of God's knowledge then has to be based on just knowing himself perfectly and knowing his actions perfectly. I, I don't, I don't, I, I think that, I don't think that works. Um, for all the reasons I, I lay out in my book, God in Emotion. So I would, yeah, so I would reject, I would reject that. But, um, so yeah, but I'm happy with the idea of like God knowing the truth values of all propositions. That seems fine to me, but the propositions, they, they change their truth values over time. 
Um, and then certain experiential knowledge you can only acquire by actually experiencing reality. So God can't have experiential knowledge of, you know, uh, Moses, but until Moses comes into existence, he can't have experiential knowledge of what it's like to see Abraham actually trust him until Abraham actually does in fact trust him. So that's going to be a new kind of experience that God has uh, yeah. this first person, this acquaintance with, uh, with Abraham himself. So, so yeah, so I think, so like what Scott was saying is if that, if that passage is really saying something about this is what God is like, then, it, then whatever sort of story you tell about the nature of God, it better not be the exact opposite of what that yeah. passage is teaching. Yeah. That's, that's good. Okay. Now, Scott, let me toss a question back to you. Um, what sort of impact does, would, would this idea of how you understand God and his experience with his creation, um, to relate back to your own practical life and and your walk with God, does does this does this impact that in any way to make it more real to you that that it's an experience that you're having together and not something that was prescripted in some way? Wow, that's an excellent question. I think it breathes life into my experience. Um, I remember, forty-seven years ago, when I was first confronted with this idea of uh, is God an eternal now, or is, is duration an aspect of his existence? And for me at the time, I was so young that the classical ideas, the little bit I knew about it, froze him out of my experience because I would consciously say, well, if I think I'm hearing from God now or impressed by something in Scripture, you know, if he knew it from eternity and whatnot, and then that formed a bridge between me and my notional picture of God. But having this uh, made in the image of God as a kernel of notion, that that idea led to this consonance with Scripture, then I can believe that what he's saying to others in Scripture, now I know, or now I'm seeing that you're going to reject what I'm saying, things of that nature, um, it doesn't cause a break in my normal experience. So, That's good. Yes, it's, it's, it's integral to my relationship with God. May I say one other thing? Yep. There's a, a, something that should be uh, thrown out somewhere in this conversation, and that's the notion of the incipiency of the human will. And by that, um, we're talking about a notion that was brought out more in the uh, in McCabe's era, around the 1880s in his books on divine missions. And that is that there's something about man, you can't fully be put in the test to, there's always going to be a may or a may not about his ultimate choices. And that is the crown of creation of being made in God's image. So if we look at it from the vantage point of this is what God has created and what he wants, yeah. then we're saying other ideas of perfection, when they tangent off into the mathematically abstract ideas, then you have to say, I'm, uh, I can't wear that. Okay. Um, okay, so let's take that and, and run with it a little bit, because that will actually kind of transition to um, this next point in our in our conversation that we wanted to get to, and that is 
um, kind of this idea of the freedom of God or the imprisonment of God. If we're made in the image of God, then in some way God is either free or imprisoned within uh, his own knowledge or his freedom to choose between what may or may not be or his freedom to choose otherwise to do something new, to, to do something different. And Will, you, you talk about this a lot. Uh, and, and your defense of the freedom of God is, is God actually free to create something new? Is he, is he free to make a new song? Is he free to create a new butterfly? Um, and to me, Scott, I, if I'm understanding what you're saying, that us being made in the image of God it implies some sort of freedom as, as God is free um, and, and, and able to do something new or to create something new or to write a new song. But um, just tell me, am I, am I understanding you right there? And then if, if so, then we can kind of take that point and transition and move on uh, to where we're going next in the conversation. That's right. Okay. Um, okay, Will, maybe you can take that and see what, see what you think um, as it's related. I think we kind of already touched on this a little bit with the image of God and the freedom of God, but maybe you can take it in your own words and not just let me speak with uh, for you because I know that you've this is kind of a passion of yours in describing the freedom of God and, and his ability to do new things and not to be bound by um, his knowledge in some sense. Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> over a decade ago, I don't remember exactly how long ago it was, maybe you know, closer to two decades ago, I was caught up in the you know, Calvinism versus Arminianism debate, and it was all centered on man's freedom. And I don't really know what it was, but one day it just hit me that, wait a minute, what about God's freedom? What about God's free will? And so I decided to kind of, you know, take a, a detour, if you will, and just focus on that. And the more I thought about God's freedom, the more, the more clear it was. Adding in humans really just muddied the waters, at least for me personally. And so I just started with, let's get rid of creation for a second. Let's just look at God and his will and i came to the conclusion that you know god had the ability to create or not create he had the freedom to do that um he had the freedom to design the universe in any way that he would like to he could have designed it differently etc and that was incredibly foundational for me and still is to this day of what i believe about god and then secondarily then which i think is super important is I do make the argument that, you know, we have we have a free will because God himself has a free will and we were created in his image and likeness. Okay. All right, Ryan, where would you go with that conversation? Now, I do want to transition from that into, uh, maybe I, I'll just bring it up now, get your take on that and transition from that to your article um, titled, Doing Hard Time is God the Prisoner of the Oldest Dimension. And in that article, you say, for classical theists to say that God is timeless is to say that God necessarily exists, one, without beginning, two, without end, three, without succession, four, without temporal location, and five, without temporal extension. And then you go, you, you talk about conditions, one and two seem obvious, and, and but I want to get your take on that and see if we can transition into this idea of, of God being uh, the prisoner of the oldest dimension. Yeah, so I'll try to set this up so that way Will can can run his argument against um, like the Calvinists or something like that, saying like they undermine God's freedom or something like this. Um, so the classical theist wants to affirm the same thing that Will does, which is God could have existed without a universe. God was free to create or not create. And then some, but not all, classical theists want to say there's God's got a bunch of different options. Some think that God has to create the best possible universe. Others think 
mean, there is no best possible university, <laughs> so he's got some options of what to create. Um, but they did, but they mostly, but the, but the classical theists and the classical Christian tradition want to say God did not have to create, and he and there's a state of affairs where God exists without the universe. Can they do that consistently? We'll find out in a little bit. So here's what they want to say about timelessness. So to be an eternal being is different from being a timeless being because you've got what it means to be eternal. And then if you want to say timeless or temporal, that's a further claim. So to be an eternal being is to exist without beginning and without end. And so if God necessarily exists, you get eternal existence for free because a necessary being cannot uh, begin to exist because it always exists and it cannot fail to exist because that's part of what it means to be necessary. Now, timelessness wants to go further and say, not only does God exist without beginning, without end, but God exists without succession, meaning God doesn't do one thing and then another and then another and then another, because that would be to undergo succession or sequence or change. Then they want to say, well, God doesn't have temporal location. So because if you have temporal location, if you exist at a moment or in a moment, well, then you are a, a resident of time is, is the way that uh, Franz Rosencrantz and um uh, uh, what's his name, Fabrice Correa put it. So you're a resident of time if you exist at or in a moment of time. And the classical theist, classical Christian tradition says God doesn't exist, you know, in time. It doesn't exist in a moment. Uh, and then the final thing is they want to say God doesn't have this temporal extension, which just means like God doesn't persist over a series of moments. Because like you and I, we all persist from moment to moment. And then we say, well, well, if you're really timeless, you can't, you can't do that. You're not gonna, you're not gonna be persisting from moment to moment. So that's kind of like an unpacking, I guess, of, of how the, the classical thesis is going to understand timelessness. And, and then, like I said, they also want to affirm, like Will does, that God doesn't have to create. He's free to create or not create. Okay. Um, and there's, there's a lot of different areas that we can go from here with that. With that. Um, and, I, and Ryan, I know what your take is on that, but I know you also want to turn this over to Will and give him an opportunity to address it. But before we do that, Scott, do you have anything else... Um, that you wanted to add before we um, get back to Will and Ryan and pick up where we left off? I'll give you an opportunity. Do what? Thank you. Okay, perfect. Sometime later. That'll work. And you're welcome on. Obviously, we'll we'll turn it back over as we go through towards the end. If you want to call in later, you can too. So thank you for calling in, Scott. You're welcome back anytime. Thanks. Okay, um, so well, let's get your take on that. How's it related to God and being time bound um, and in His freedom? And what does that do with Calvinism or Arminianism? And where do you stand on that? Sure. Yeah. So, <clears throat> as Ryan touched upon the the idea that God, you know, did not have to create that He literally chose to create is very difficult to reconcile with timelessness. Uh, I think a, a logical conclusion of timelessness is really that creation has e existed co-eternally with God. And so I, I've got serious issues with that. Um, and in terms of God's you know, freedom and, and taking a look at these very foundational issues of God creating, choosing to create, designing creation, uh, etc. Um, you know, open theism is named such because we believe that the future, including including God's future, is open and not settled in any way. And so the other views, Calvinism, Arminianism, even Molinism, to some extent, uh, have a settled future. And so I think that that's problematic. 
with each one, it's problematic for different reasons. But if God's own future is settled, uh, I think that's, you know, approaching a, a dangerous position, uh, which removes God's free will. Yeah. And, and so that's, you know, that, that, that's big for me. And that's one of the reasons that I'm an open theist. And so, uh, you know, I, my goal is not to tell God who he is, what he knows, what he's allowed to do, what he can't do, etc. I'm trying to really extract the truth and extract the reality of who God is, what he knows, his nature, his existence, etc. Yeah. Um, okay, so on that side of the conversation, as it's related to Molinism, Calvinism, and Arminianism, I was having a conversation on in a Facebook group a while back with Tim Stratton on Molinism, and um, it, obviously he he's written the book. I, I can't I can't remember the full title of it, but Mere Molinism is is part of the title. And Tim Tim says that uh, obviously Molinism Molinism would be. Um, God considering all the all the different types of worlds that are possible to create, and it just so happens that the world that He did create would be the best possible world to create, which would include um, the free choices of human beings that uh, in this world were free. They cho- they were they were free to choose whatever they were, whatever they chose. And to me, one thing that I was drawing out is it it just seems like to me it's still just as determined as a classical theist or even a, a Calvinist or Arminian would see God and time because he's, he's taking into consideration a world to create and eliminating all the other worlds to create and, and choosing what world is going to be created, which includes the free choices, supposedly, of, of uh, his creation. So um, I know that's not in our notes, but before I forget, that's something that I've been tossing around in my head is is this idea of um, um, oh, oh what are the counterfactuals that Molinism seems to present as uh, as an option against open theism and whether or not the future truly is open that counterfactuals would be would be um, something to kind of counteract that side of becoming an open theist I say um, so anyways w- um, Ryan maybe I can get your take on this and then we'll we'll get it back to to Will. Do you see do you see um, any objections to Molinism, Arminianism, or Calvinism being just as determined as uh, each one of those other groups, or do you see some sort of um, way that um, your view opens it up to where none of them would be? <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, I, I, I'm not sure where I'm going with that, but maybe you can pick it up and just run with it. I've got an idea. So um, there's one way. So I'll, I'll I'll take the I'll take the like a I want I want to push back on Will's argument for just a second and see okay. what he what he does with it um, to try to help out like a, like even even a Calvinist. Uh, I'll do that for the Calvinist today. So imagine someone like John Duns Scotus walks in the room, and Will, you're like, you can't you can't get God any sort of freedom um, if he like has this sort of like you know determines how the future is going to go. And Scotus is like, all right, well, I was going to say hold my beer, but he's, he's from Scotland. So he's going to be like, you know, hold, hold my whiskey. And so Scotus is like, all right, there's these things called logical moments in the life of God. They're a lot like temporal moments. I swear they're not temporal. Please don't think of them as temporal. They're logical moments. And so at the very first logical moment, God knows all the possibilities. Does God know what's going to happen? Well, no, because he hasn't determined what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, but he knows at the first logical moment, he knows all the possibilities. And then at the next logical moment, God uh, decides, I want to create a universe. 
Uh, and which one? Uh, that one. Not those other ones. Those, those are not good ones. But this one. I want to create this one. And so then at the, the logical moment after that, God all of a sudden now has this foreknowledge of what will in fact happen. Yeah. So there was the state of affairs uh, at that first logical moment where God's future, uh, logical future, because not temporal, because he's not temporal. It, you know, it got to be timeless. His logical future <laughs> is completely not really open. Um, and then it gets, you know, more determinate as we go to the next logical moment, the next logical moment, and so on. And this is the sort of like thing that like Calvinists and Molinists and Arminians, like they build off of this sort of story that Scotus tells. Um, so I don't know, what, what do you kind of think of this sort of sort of story uh, before like I, I might like run like something different? But like, yeah, how would you respond to something like that? Yeah, so this is the uh, this is the logical versus chronological argument. Mm-hmm. which uh, I, I don't I don't think really works. Um, you know, they, they use examples which are very different than God actually acting, than, you know, with God actually creating. For example, they'll use mm-hmm. like a math problem. You know, William Lane Craig loves to talk about this. Um, even, Ryan, even as you were, you know, attempting to, you know, use their argument, it, it's... It, it, the truth still comes out, which is that there is a moment where God doesn't know, and then there's a moment where God does know. And so if that's the reality of the situation, two things just fell. One is timelessness fell, because we have succession, we have a before and after. And then, uh, actually, maybe I should say three things fell. Th- then we have omniscience and foreknowledge in this context not being eternal, and then I would argue then immutability falls because we have a change in God, which is going from not knowing to knowing, going from seeing all the possible worlds and choosing one of them. And so I think that, at least for me, thinking through their argument logically, that's where I would, I would end up. Okay, so Ryan, do you, see, do you see any contradictions between a logical progression and a chronological progression? Because it seems like the classical theist would say, um, there is no chronological pr- progression uh, where God is having a, a logical progression. And to me, that just seems contradictory, but I, I don't know how to work those things out like you and Will do, so I'll just turn it over to you and see what you think. Well, so, so I think Will's point about like um, when people give these math examples, like, I think that's a really good, a good point, because when you're giving a math example, you're not talking about logically contradictory states of affairs. You're, you're talking about logical order of things that are all perfectly consistent to obtain simultaneously. Like two plus two equals four. Um, right. There's a logical progression of the two plus two, and then I get the four. Right. Well, that's all, that's all consistent with like, a, like obtaining like, you know, in a single timeless moment. But God not knowing the future and God knowing the future, both obtaining in a single simultaneous moment, that kind of looks like a contradiction because you've got God knowing and God not knowing all from it, all from all eternity. If that's not a contradiction, then I don't know what a contradiction is. So, yeah. so I think Will's right to push back on that and be like, this is, yeah. this is a serious problem. Well, uh, so let me help the, the Calvinist out in a different way then. So say the Calvinist, like a uh, John Feinberg. Uh, so he's like timelessness. That's awful. It's unbiblical. Uh, let's get, let's get away from it. Um, but you know, God determining the future, uh, in this sort of way, that's, that's perfectly biblical according to John Feinberg. Now, if he's going to have this sort of temporal story, he'll still he'll say at the first temporal moment, not a logical moment, because that's, that's weird. The first temporal moment, God's future is completely open. It really is. Um, and God hasn't determined anything. And then God looks at all the possible worlds and he goes, that one, I like that one. 
And so at the next logical moment, or the next temporal moment, then God does select, uh, this is how things are going to go. And so you get the freedom there because you really do have God considering a completely open future and then determining how things are going to go after that. So God makes a free decision. And since this whole debate that we're looking at at just this moment is, can we get God freedom? I think a Calvinist at least can get the freedom, uh, divine freedom there. Will it get you human freedom? That's a, that's a separate question. But since we're looking at the divine freedom, I think that's the, where the Calvinists, if they want to affirm temporality, I think they could go this way. I don't know. What do you think of that, Will? Yeah, so I refer to this position as classical Calvinism. Uh, I'm not an expert by any means, but when I research, you know, historically, uh, you know, going even, you know, pre-Calvin um, and, and pre-Arminius, uh, what I see is I see Calvinists arguing what you just said, Ryan, which is mm -hmm. that they're not arguing for timelessness. They're not ar arguing for atemporality. And I actually think that that's logically consistent. I rarely meet a Calvinist today. I, I mean, it's incredibly rare. Uh, may, maybe one out of 500 that will make this argument. But I actually think that it works logically. And so then the reality is, you know, it, it's referred to as God's decree in their yeah. confessions. And so then, then the next step, once we have found common ground, which is, okay, now that's a logical position, is did God actually do that? Was there yeah. this decree of everything exhaustively? It, does that work with scriptures, et cetera? And, and again, I don't think so, but that would be the next, the next step right. in my mind. Okay. Um, now we've got a couple of comments that have come in that are related to what we're talking about right here. And Christopher Fisher is one of them. He says, anyone who affirms the classical attribute of simplicity does not believe that God has potentiality or ability to choose between options. And Patrice Patel says, it seems to me that to know all possibilities logically seems to require that all possibilities must exist logically before God knows them. So there is some sort of sequential time element here. And, and Will, the way that I understand your argument as it's related to the eternal decree is um, there is some sort of, of free knowledge and natural knowledge that precedes the decree. Um, and, and I don't know how to um, wrap those, those things together in some sort of timeless manner that, that they all happen sequentially, or not sequentially, they all happen at, at the same moment um, without happening sequentially. So you've got God's natural knowledge is free knowledge and then the decree. I mean, you don't have the decree, then the natural knowledge and the free knowledge to make the decree and then to create but but it's it seems like it does go in order as as free knowledge natural knowledge then the decree and then the creation um but how would that be related to what chris fisher and patrice patel brought up seeming that it it logically seems to require that all possibilities must exist logically before god knows them yeah so um you know again I know I mentioned this already, but I'm going to say it again, which is that I, I think it's really easy for us as theologians, you know, may, maybe philosophers uh, to, you know, say this is what God knows. This is what God must know. He's got free knowledge. He's got natural knowledge. I think it's important uh, to give God the freedom to know things or to not know things. Yeah. So, for example, biblically, you know, we are commanded to, you know, 
take our thoughts captive and focus on things above. And so I'm not, I'm not someone who believes that God eternally, you know, thought about all of the horrible things that were possibilities and all of the different ways people could be evil to other people. And so I, I, is that something that he could choose to know? I think definitely possibly, but I don't know if that's something he desired to or actually did attempt to know. Okay. Um, now, I think that's important to the conversation. And Ryan, I do want to get your take on this as well, because I think that um, when we talk about the God being temporal or, or timeless, um, it, it could be related to God's knowledge um, prior to creation and whether or not he actually planned the world and created the world that he wanted it to be exactly the way it is, including all the evil. And, and obviously this carries over into some of the things that you talk about in your book, um, The End of the Timeless God, and how it relates to soteriology, eschatology, so, um, um, and, and just the practical side of, of, of your Christianity, how you think about God and timelessness, and um, or God and time more specifically. But um, I guess the next question would be in contrast, what would it mean to say that God is temporal? Mm -hmm. So Will and I have already kind of alluded to it a bit throughout. So I'll just, I'll just, yeah, I think it's good to just get it more precise. So if you're going to say God's temporal, you're still affirming God's eternal. So you're going to say God exists without beginning and without end. Because again, that just follows from God's necessary existence. Uh, but you're going to say that God can have succession. Um, so God can undergo... Uh, change from going doing one thing after another after another uh, he god can have temporal location um, so god exists right now so if you're a presentist you're going to say when does god exist well he exists now uh, and then if you're an eternalist you're going to say well he exists at all the moments because uh, all the moments are equally real um, you know i don't want to affirm eternalism but if you if you want to you there you go uh, and then you would say that God also has temporal extension, which just means that God has some kind of persistence. So if you're a presentist, you're going to say God has um, endures through time. There's new, he has numerical identity over time. If you affirm eternalism, you're probably going to affirm some sort of view where like, there's these things called temporal parts. And so you would say that God has temporal parts. Uh, so there's a temporal part of God located at all the different moments uh, on the timeline. So you got some options here, again, of how you want to do it. But I guess so the, one of the biggest things, I guess, for, for people that are listening or watching is that God can undergo succession. That's the biggest thing for, for uh, a temporalist. Okay. Um, and it's, it seems like, um, it seems like, oh, where was I going with this? Um, okay, so we're talking about the attributes of God and some of them being the immutability of God, the omniscience of God. And it seems like, Ryan, you're saying that as it's related to the omniscience of God, that would include all possibilities um, and God knowing um, extensively and exhaustively all possibilities of any choice or action that anybody could make, but not necessarily that he, he knows the actual choices that they, they, they necessarily would make. Um, is, is that a distinction that you're willing to kind of stand by and say, well, God knows all the possibilities and, and the outcomes of any of these possible scenarios that people could make, but he, he doesn't necessarily know the decisions and choices um, that they would make uh, exhaustively, if I'm wording mm -hmm. that correctly. Uh, no, no, I, I get what you're getting, what you're trying to say though. Um, so typically, as I understand it, it's 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 usually pretty uncontroversial to say God God can know all the logical possibilities. Um, so I, I don't think that's very controversial. Will's point is interesting because it's it's a 
he could, but does he does he want to? Um, maybe right. maybe he's got good reasons to not, to not want to. And so that's an interesting uh, conversation to have. Um, but but the, just the idea that God could ha- know all logical possibilities that's usually pretty standard fare because the claim is that logical logical possibilities or the modal scope of reality is grounded in God's nature. Um, or something sometimes called the divine ideas, because God knows all the ways he could uh, have things participate or imitate his nature. Uh, so, so yeah. Um, so, so, so even an open theist, I think, can say God has natural knowledge, knowledge of all possibilities. Then you got these other questions, though, is can God know what creatures would do in all possible circumstances? And then does God know what they will do? Those are different things. Um, okay. Uh, the logical possibilities that I, I think that's un, that's I think that is uncontroversial typically. Okay. Um, and okay. Well, let's get your let's get your take on that. Um, and we've got we've got a caller coming in. I'll get the caller on the line, but I do want to give you a chance to kind of respond to what Ryan brought up there as as a potential um, area that may may need drawn out a little more on your perspective as it's related to God knowing all possibilities. Even does God know all the possibilities, or are there some things He's chosen not to know? Sure. Um, It's definitely a highly philosophical conversation. Uh, You know, unfortunately, we don't have a verse that says God knows all possibilities. We don't have a verse that says God has middle knowledge. Um, Mm -hmm. Shannon actually asked a question that would tie into this if you want to go over that while I'm after I respond. Uh, But anyway, you know, for me, for me, I want to look at scripture and I want to say, okay, let's let's go through Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, and let's determine, you know, what kind of knowledge God has. And you know, you mentioned the thirty-three categories that I have, you know, helped uh, create on OpenTheism.org of verses. And I would say that you know some of those categories would tend to appear that God does not have, uh, you know, knowledge of all of these possibilities. Um, Obviously, these verses are, you know, debated, but we have multiple times in Scripture where God says that something did not enter his mind. And so I think that that's highly problematic for for, for people that think God knows all possibilities. Yeah. Okay, and before we introduce our uh, guest, Kyle Vollmer, I do want to get to Shannon's question. Shannon Herring said, and I saw it earlier, I wanted to get to it, but I forgot. Um, so Sh- Sh- Shannon says to Duffy in Second Samuel 23, this is one of my favorite passages in, in kind of understanding whether it's counterfactuals from a Molinist perspective or whether it's whether it's counter knowledge um, from uh, in a, a dynamic omniscience perspective. He says in Second Samuel 23:12, God tells David the men of Keliah uh, will give him over to Saul. How could God know this? And obviously this plays into what actually happened in the story. Um, but, Will, let's get your take on that. How would you answer, Shannon? Yeah, great question, Shannon. J- just for record's sake, I think it's First Samuel, not Second Samuel. Right. Um, well, number one, the, the important thing here is that it actually did not happen. So, right. interestingly enough, I have conversations with other theologians, and that, that is something that's not known by everyone. And so, we have something here, which is being stated by God, which we can't look at the result and say, it, you know, it was accurate, it wasn't, etc. And so, yeah, yeah, this is a passage used by a lot of Molinists for middle knowledge. My response really is simply this. God is communicating to David 
present knowledge. Uh, he knows the heart state of these men. He knows exactly what they're doing. Uh, you know, Saul is, you know, trying to, you know, capture David. And literally, he knows exactly what they're doing. And so he's telling them, yeah. hey, this is what they're planning. This is where they're headed. And if you stay here, you're going to be captured. So you probably should leave. That's how I look yeah. at it. Yep. No, I'm with you on that. And he left and he wasn't captured and he wasn't given over to Saul. So, um, Ryan, how would you respond to that? And then we'll we'll get to Kyle. I, I've got you on the screen. I know you're being patient. We'll get to you in, as soon as I get Ryan's take on this. So thank you for being patient. No, I, I think that passage is is perfectly consistent with Molinism and open theism because it, the open theist, I mean, the kind of predictive power that God has on open theism, I think should be pretty high. So yeah. I, I feel like God could to, could could definitely look and see like, what are those guys over there doing? Oh yeah, David, if you go over there, this is how things are going to go. So let's all go over there. Um, so yeah, I feel like that, that passage should be consistent with open theism and, and Mormonism. Yeah, I agree. Cool. Okay. Let's get you unmuted, Kyle. It looks like you've got yourself muted if you want to get unmuted and, uh, you are on with, uh, Will and, and Dr. Mullen. So I'll turn it over to you for either your question or your comment. Cool. Well, how's it going, guys? Uh, thanks for letting me on. And, and I know both of Ryan and Will from uh, Facebook. We've had a number of great interactions before, and so uh, always a pleasure to talk with you guys. Um, so I, I have a, a couple of questions, actually. So one thing um, is actually about Will's like sub view of open theism, because um, I'm an open theist myself. Actually, I'm an open penentheist, um, and so I hold to one kind of open theism, which is different from you know, like Swinburne's view or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so it sounded like kind of, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you're like a voluntary notion, notions uh, person. So you would say that God just like, had, he just blocks off his knowledge of the future. Is that fair? Or how would you, you would describe your view? No, I wouldn't say that he blocks off his uh, knowledge of the future. So my, my view is nuanced. So number one, I would take the position that the future does not exist. Therefore, there's nothing there for God to know. And then in terms of, I, I'm pretty sure I know where this is coming from. It's based on what I said at the beginning. <clears throat> and so I, I would I would say it this way. There's, there's an interesting conversation to be had, which is the source of God's knowledge. And so I think that that's very fascinating. We, we have scripture that implies that there are angels that bring God information. And so I don't know if it means that he wouldn't have that without the angels bringing him the information, but it's possible. Uh, then we have, you know, just the ability for God to either A, will to not know something that's going on, or B, and it could be both of these, by the way, to will not to know what could happen, possibilities. And that that is something that I just want to be careful on. Uh, I, you know, it's not something that I, you know, would call myself strong on, but I just want to be careful. And again, in the in the light of trying to figure out exactly who God is, how he works, what he knows, why he knows it, as opposed to saying, Here, here's what I think. And so then I'm going to place that on God himself. And so from a voluntary standpoint, I do think it's possible that God, ha you know, has, you know, divine nescience. So... Hopefully that answers that, Kyle. Yeah, so where would you go from there, Kyle? You're saying that you are an open theist from a panentheist perspective, which 
which uh, if you could explain for the audience, I think we've kind of touched on this a little bit before as it's related to time and the creation of time uh, and, and, and how that would impact creation ex nihilo. But um, you would, the way that I understand it, you would say that creation is part of an attribute of God. It's coexistent with who God is in some sort of sense. Yeah. So my view is, is very weird. Um, so I'm, I'm a metaphysical idealist for one. And so I think that, um, that reality is just uh, consciousness rather than it's fundamentally consciousness um, anything like physical or something like that. Now there's there's some nuances to get into there, but my my panentheism is real, but it kind of flows from that um, because one thing that the panentheist would affirm is that um, that the universe is eternal, and I'm going to affirm something kind of like that, um, except I'm just going to say the universe is ex materia. So because I think all the mind of God and part of the mental processes of God, or, or it's, it's hard to articulate, but something like that. Um, and so I think that the universe came from the mental um, abstractions of God's mind, which materia in some sense. Um, and then I'm also a presentist and an open theist. Um, now I think I find um, something closer to like Alan Rhoda or Greg Boyd's view pretty compelling, because um, part of the reason is I think that the arguments um, against like the ability to know future free contingent actions. I think those are really compelling. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of my view. Um, I see. Okay. Okay, so um, it, it, we understand your perspective a little better, and I think you've got clarification on Will's um, perspective a little better. Is there anything else that you wanted to bring up in a question or a comment? And if not, yeah, that's actually totally fine too. One thing for Ryan. Okay. Yeah, I had one thing for Ryan. So you're and Ryan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the last time we talked about this, you said you're a Molinist. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So I'm kind of interested. So um, one, if you're familiar with um, some of the thoughts that Alan Rhoda has with respectism argument and Molinism, and then if you are familiar with that, then like, how would you respond? Because he thinks uh, that, you that, that, that Molinism entails. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, just gonna repeat it because yeah, it cut out for just a second, so I missed a really important word. You're good. Um, he thinks, Alan Rhoda thinks, and I, I think I'm inclined to agree, that Molinism entails, or it falls into the divine fatalism argument. Um, if Molinism is true and not used his middle knowledge in the creation, um, then that entails divine fatalism. And so I'm kind of interested if you're familiar with that and what you, your thoughts are on that. So it's been a while since I've looked at it. So it's uh, fatalism even for God or just fatalism for humans? Uh, fatalism for humans. Basically the, the argument of um, if God knows the future, how can we be free kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say in response to it um, other than I don't think Molinism gives you an answer to that. Uh, so John Martin Fisher and s several others will argue that Molinism doesn't give you an answer to the freedom foreknowledge problem. In fact, Molinism just seems like it assumes an answer to the freedom foreknowledge problem. And I think William Lane Craig's admitted this in a couple places as well. Uh, and I'm, I'm strongly inclined to agree with that, that Molinism doesn't give you an answer. You have to look elsewhere for that. Uh, you could go, you could be an alchemist. I don't really like alchemism. Um, there's this crazy time ordering account that Ryan Byerly's doing. 
that seem I think that's kind of cool, um, but I'm still trying to figure out the details of that. But Molinism by itself, yeah, I don't think it gives you an answer to the freedom for knowledge problem. Um, so if Rhoda's just trying to attack Molinism on that ground, uh, then I would I would say like yeah, fair point. Um, Molinism doesn't give an answer, but it doesn't seem so, like it's designed. So I would have a question then, because it seems like uh, that would be kind of the whole purpose of presenting Molinism in the first place is to present some sort of alternative for Calvinism or or Arminianism as it's related to d- divine determinism. So if it doesn't present um, if it doesn't present um, another option for um, freedom and determinism, then what what really is the purpose of Molinism? Oh, I think Molinism is primarily uh, a theory of providence. So if you can somehow figure out how to reconcile uh, libertarian freedom and foreknowledge, uh, ooh, okay, well, cool. Um, now, now, what theory of providence do you want to go with? Well, middle knowledge, like that gives you that gives you like a whole lot more uh, things that God can know, and it gives God all sorts of like really great providential uh, power. So that's that's I think that's supposed to be the kind of the benefit there, the payoff of it. So Ken Pirzik, who's written uh, a lot on Molinism, he's one of the editors of the book. Um, he's the editor of the book called Molinism: The Contemporary Debate. Uh, so he's not a Molinist, but he he argues like you know if, if I if I affirmed a, a, a personal understanding of God, which he doesn't, uh, if if I did, then I would uh, affirm Molinism because it gives God so much more providential power than like what an open theist would get. Uh, so I think that's that's supposed to be the real benefit. There is you get some sort of answer for the liber- for the freedom for knowledge problem from somewhere else. And then I've got this great, awesome story of providence to tell you. So you're saying that you can, you can, you can be a Molinist and still, um, in some way, affirm that God does not exhaustively know every decision that each individual would freely make, except in the realm of possibility or probability. Is that right? Oh um, no! So the Molinist says, like at the natural at this that first logical moment, which I don't want to call it a logic. I would just say. It first temporal moment of natural knowledge, God would know all the logical possibilities. Uh, and then at the next logical moment, God considers, he like kind of looks at the next set. He's like, so we've got all these logical, logical possible timelines. Um, well, some of those are just merely logical. Some of them are feasible. Like what, what would creatures actually do their, their free will? Uh, and then so the middle knowledge is considering that subset of all the logically possible worlds, this subset of all the feasible worlds of this is what creatures would do with their libertarian freedom. What will they do? Well, well, God hasn't decreed anything yet. So there is, God hasn't said which timeline is yet. And so then that's the next logical moment. God issues a decree and then you get the free knowledge and then you get the foreknowledge. So that's, that's the sort of kind of story that the, the Molinist typically tells. Hmm. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, let's see, Will, do you have anything that you want to uh, add into the conversation that we're having about Molinism uh, with Kyle or... Um, if not, we can toss it back to you, Kyle, and go from there. Yeah, just quickly, uh, you know, I I actually appreciate where Molinists are coming from. I think they really are, you know, a lot of them in their hearts trying to reconcile, you know, foreknowledge and freedom. And so I think they're they're trying to, you know, defend freedom, which I completely, you know, appreciate and support. Uh, I don't agree with Molinism, but I, from, from where they're coming from, I, I do appreciate it. And it's also good <laughs> to have other alternatives to the age-old Arminianism-Calvinism debate. So. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. That's good. Okay, Kyle, um, what else do you have? And uh, if not, that's totally fine. I know that uh, being that you've had discussions with Will and Ryan in the past, I'm sure we could 
keep this thing going and have a four-way conversation the rest of the the rest of the episode. But um, if not, why don't I just give you one more question or comment, and then and then yeah. we'll go on from That'd there. Be perfect, because I okay. do have one teensy little thing. Okay. Um. So, and this is, uh, I guess, in in regards to the um, because Ryan mentioned Occamism, and I think that Occamism is probably one of the other, in addition to open theism, one of the other better responses to um, the problem of uh, divine knowledge and, and human freedom. Um, and so that actually kind of interests me about how, if you think Occamism has problems, how do you ground counterfactuals on Molinism? How would you say that, that God knows those things? Because I think that's the biggest problem for both of those views, and that's why I kind of reject both. So hmm. how, how would you ground those, I guess? And that'll be my yeah, last Yeah, so... Yeah, no, no, this, this is this is the right question to ask. So the alchemist, some of them are doing this crazy sort of like backwards uh, grounding. So somehow like what I'm doing now grounds God's knowledge in the past. And then some others are going, I swear that's not what I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm I'm just like, okay, I can't see how you're not doing that. So I'm t I typically kind of just going, I, I don't understand what you're saying then. Because it, it looks, some people are very explicit, like, yeah, it is some kind of like backwards uh, grounding sort of relation. Um, with regards to like the counterfactuals though, like the grounding objection, like is okay. The grounding literature as a whole is really super weird. And I'm starting to come to the view that the grounding, uh, objection or the grounding principle, these truth maker principles, they're not as intuitive as they seem like. Uh, so people who are not even interested in Molinism whatsoever, like Fabrice Correa and, uh, Franz Rosencrantz and Ulrich Mayer. They're looking at all these these grounding objections, and they're going this truthmaker principle. In order to really do all the all the work it needs to do, you have to add in all sorts of bizarre stuff, um, like making states of affairs like these fundamental things in reality, having some kind of um, bizarre like constituents and things like. So you have to do this crazy like sort of story that Arm David Armstrong has, and so these guys are going, why would I, that's awful? Uh, like who knew that something so intuitive would entail that I have to believe like all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, and so this just loses its intuitive appeal is kind of the sort of argument that these guys run completely independent of Molinism whatsoever. They're just looking at the grounding objection to like, say like presentism or something like that. And so their stance is one that I find very attractive, which is if this grounding principle is entailed towards horribly unintuitive stuff, then something's just wrong with the grounding principle. Uh, what replaces it? I don't know. I have no clue. Um, but it's, but it, but it, if it entails all sorts of crazy stuff, then it's not intuitive and it's counterintuitive. And so then this sort of objection to Molinism is going to fall away as well. Hmm. But I don't know how to summarize all of that stuff in a nice, neat package. Um, it's something I'm still working out. But I, yeah, I can send you links uh, later on, on Facebook if you want to some of those sources. Yeah, that'd be great. That's good. Hey, mm -hmm. tag me on that too. That. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for coming right. on. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. All right. Okay. Oh, crap. I just knocked off Ryan. Sorry. Ryan, jump back on. <laughs> I was trying to exit. I was trying to exit Kyle out, and I knocked Ryan off. So, Ryan, jump back on here if you get a chance to. Hey, Josh. There's a... Uh, there we go. There's a, there's a debate going on in the comments I'd like to just yeah, say okay. a quick word on. Yeah, let's see. What What so, is it that I need to bring up? Uh, Morph Wales and Scott Taylor have been talking about who's speaking in Genesis 22. Is it God okay. or is it or is it an angel? Okay. And uh, what I believe, and I don't think this is controversial, so I'm really responding to Morph Wales here, is that the angel of the Lord is speaking the words of God. 
and you'll notice at the at the end of verse 12 it ends with since you have not withheld your son your only son from me and so obviously uh you know abraham was not you know doing doing something for an angel he was doing that for god and and so right. obviously there's not lowercase and uppercase in in the hebrew but the translations probably all of them capitalize me there because it's obviously referring to god okay so that's uh that's kind of a conversation on whether or not that's uh the pre-existent son as uh, as the angel of the lord in the old testament is that kind of where you're going with that will not necessarily. I just think that it's pretty clearly the words of God. And so making a big deal about who's communicating those words, I don't think it's significant in this context. Oh, okay. I'm not sure that I was following that conversation. So I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't think I'll have much to offer. Um, but I, I, I have spent a lot of time in the last few weeks debating with uh, Unitarians and oneness folk as it's related to the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And actually, I was working on a debate with Carlos Xavier, who is uh, Sir Anthony Buzzard's son-in-law, um, who's a Unitarian, and they would take the position that um, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is is a manifestation of the Father in some way, um, just to kind of avoid the Trinitarian side of the conversation where you've got Yahweh speaking to Yahweh in multiple places like Genesis 19, uh, the angel, the appearance of the angel of the Lord um, speaking and being worshipped in Genesis 22 as God and um, those sorts of things. But but anyways, I wasn't following that sort of the conversation, so I think it's good to get clarification there. And Ryan, by the way, I accidentally booted you earlier. I was trying to <laughs> accident, but welcome back. So yeah, you're out, you're out. So you're just, all right. Um, anyways, welcome back. So let's all right, let's pick up the conversation where we were, um, where we had kind of left off. There's so much more to go, and and we're not even going to touch a dent in what we had kind of planned out to talk about. But two things, if we do get the time to talk about it, that I really want to, are how does open theism impact uh, kind of these divine attributes of God, like immutability, aseity, um, foreknowledge. Um, uh, all the omnis that we had talked about earlier, which we've already kind of touched on, but I really want to, so I want to touch on the attributes of God, how open open theism impacts those sorts of things, and I really, really, really want to get to the incarnation and how uh, these sort of, sorts of attributes of God would would truly impact the incarnation. So um, let's see, how do we want to start that side of the conversation with uh, those attributes like immutability, mutability, the experience of God with his creation, um, and, and those sorts of things. Maybe you guys can kind of direct the conversation where we go from here. Yeah, yeah I think so, talking about um, yeah, immutability, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think talking about immutability and timelessness would be exciting for the audience. Okay. Okay, so take it away. Let's define what immutability is and uh, what sort of relationship it would have on the timelessness of God um, if God was mutable in, in some way and not others. Mm-hmm. Um, so immutability classically defined is that God cannot change in any way, shape, or form. And so for and theologian, he would say that means that God cannot undergo any intrinsic or extrinsic change. 
and then Paul Helm, who's a contemporary uh, classical theist, who is has, in his book on um, this is called The Eternal God, where he's defending divine timelessness. He says the kind of immutability you need is where God cannot undergo any intrinsic or extrinsic change, or what we call mere Cambridge change. God cannot change in relation to other things because in order to to undergo those kind of changes, you would already be engaged in succession, and well, well you don't have timelessness. Because timelessness means, again, without succession. So you really have to have unchanging, completely unchanging, in order to have a successionless God. So that's how immutability and timelessness, it seems like they're mutually entailing because of that. Okay. Um, well, let's get your take on it. What's the relationship of immutability and timelessness of God? Yeah, it's definitely difficult to have a conversation about one or the other and not have the other one uh, come up. There's practically universal agreement that change uh, that change requires time. So there's the link between immutability and timelessness. Um, uh, th that's just, I, I think, pretty simple to understand. If you have a change, uh, you have a you have a before and after. So the change was from something to something. And that would be very difficult uh, to reconcile, if not impossible, with timelessness and atemporality. And so that's, that's kind of the link. Um, I do think there are ways to hold to a form of immutability um, without, you know, meeting the classical definitions, without holding to timelessness, for example, you know, me personally, I believe that God is immutable in his character. He's immutable in his love. But if we if we start talking about what these words really mean in the literature, it's utter immutability. As Ryan mentioned, no intrinsic change, no extrinsic change. And uh, I really simply think that it's not biblical. And, uh, you, you know, you brought up, Josh, the incarnation. I just don't see how the incarnation <coughs> is reconcilable with either timelessness or immutability. Okay. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. Okay. Um, now, I was going to see if we could direct the conversation into um, how the uh, theory of time would be related to God's foreknowledge, and specifically 1 Peter 1-2, but let's, let's hold that for a second and see if we can take where we're at in the conversation right now with the incarnation and immutability and, and change in time and these sorts of concepts with the incarnation, because that's something that is really, um, really seems to be drawing a lot of uh, my own uh, attention to that side of the conversation. Ryan, you wrote extensively about that um, in your book, The End of the Timeless God. You've got an entire chapter on the incarnation, um, and there's so many references. By the way, guys, if you get a chance to get that book, I would highly recommend it. There's, there's, I mean, it's, I'm not just trying to, you know, suck up to Ryan because he's on my podcast. I'm just telling you, like, seriously, when I went to Will, I was like, hey, Will, I'm kind of looking at um, diving into some of these topics on uh, trying to understand open theism better. What, what, what would you recommend I go and kind of um, trying to, to read about and, and to get a good grasp on these things? The first two books he said was, you got to get Ryan Mullen's book, uh, The End of the Timeless God, one. And then two, you've got to get um, God, Time, and the Incarnation. I, I I think that's the title of the other, which I got both of those. 
Um, and I'm still going through that other one, but I'm telling you that your book, Ryan, has been extremely helpful. One, because I mean, it's it's scholarly, but it's still on a level that you know you, you crack jokes in it. It's kind of funny in some spots, but um, yeah, I mean, you talk you talk about the incarnation. So let's let's talk about the incarnation. Some people would say that when it comes to the incarnation and God being timeless, that he's in an eternal now, that the divine side of the incarnation, the deity of Christ in the incarnation, is still in a timeless state while yet he is incarnate in, in the flesh that is, that is sequential and um, temporal. So you've got the temporal meeting with the atemporal, the timeless met with time, um, the sequential met with uh, <laughs> um, etern- the eternal now. I, to me, that seems incoherent, but where do we go in the conversation to, see, to kind of work out these seeming contradictions? Um, Will, let's get your take first, and then, Ryan, I want to go back to you. Uh, why is the incarnation so important to you as an open theist, and how do you see change in God as it's related to the incarnation? Sure. Yeah, I think, um, <clears throat> I think the important piece with the incarnation that's foundational is the difficulty reconciling the incarnation with divine timelessness. Um, The incarnation uh, essentially creates uh, a past in the person of God. And it creates a past because I don't think anybody would argue that God the Son was eternally a man. Arguing that God the Son was eternally a man essentially makes God's existence dependent upon man And if we go back to what we talked about previously, God didn't even have to create man. And so there's no reason for the second person of the Trinity to be a man. And so, you know, many people are familiar with the term hypostatic union. This is the term in Christianity where the divine nature and the human nature essentially uh, became one. And this is where the human nature was added to the divine nature. These these are all temporal terminologies, uh, terms, and language. And so what we have with the incarnation is we have a change. Uh, Again, I think a lot of people misunderstand uh, what I'm trying to say. Maybe they're mishearing what I'm trying to say. And I'm not saying that this is an intrinsic change, but this is absolutely an extrinsic change. When you have a divine nature that is not uh, hypostatically joined to a human nature, and then that happens, that's an extrinsic change. And that type of a change requires time. It creates a past for God the Son. It actually creates a past for God the Father as well. He was the father of a son with one nature in the past. Presently, he's now the father of a son with two natures. And so I think for timelessness and immutability, the incarnation is very difficult, if not possible, to reconcile. Ryan, let's get your take on that. Um, obviously, you've got the hypostatic union being brought into this and uh, the two natures, the divine nature met with the human nature. Um, some sort of change is taking place. I think we can all admit that. But um, it, you've got another problem that is, that's kind of uh, exponentially um, added to the, the <laughs> that's added to the conversation when you're, you're talking about the trinity of one being who is God that now you've got the the son who's taking on another nature. I mean, how are we not adding how are we not adding a fourth person to the trinity when you're when you, you might have two minds going on here, but let's see let's just take this change the the from the simple side of the conversation to the incarnation. Where where do you go with that, Ryan? 
Yeah, so I'll go a little bit slower. So, so like, so like Will mentioned, it seems like if you're going to have a personal union, uh, that's what hypostatic union is supposed to be. It's like the two natures are united in the person of Christ. Well, that human nature, that didn't exist until like, what, like 4, 4 BC or something, 2 BC. Uh, so, this, so God the Son clearly could not be eternally related to this thing, uh, this human nature. So it's got to be a change. And I want to say it's stronger than just merely an extrinsic change, because um, if you, if I am interacting, well, as my soul interacts with my body, because I'm a substance dualist, so I am a soul and I interact with my body, that's an intrinsic change in me, because I'm thinking one thing and then and then thinking another thing. I'm willing my act, my arm to go do this or willing my arm to do that. So those are intrinsic changes, uh, changes in my the exercises of my powers. And so I want to say the incarnation um, seems like God the Son says, you know, hey, we got this plan to save humanity. Father, this sounds cool. Holy Spirit sounds good. All right, well, I'm going to perform an action uh, of, of uh, you know, going down here and doing this whole uh, ministry thing. Um, and so that is going to be an, in, an intrinsic change in, in, in the sun as well, it seems, because the sun is going to be performing actions that he was not performing before. He's going to be performing actions like, you know, not crying. Um, ooh, now I'm going to wander off from my, my parents and go preach in the temple for a little bit. And then when my parents get mad at me, I'll be like, yeah, hey, well, where else did you expect to find me? Um, so, you know, these are different actions that it seems like God the Son is taking. And so those are going to be some intrinsic changes too. Now, what you alluded to with uh, seems like I'm adding a fourth person into the into the Trinity. Well, this is where I think things get really weird. So different people in, in an attempt to defend timelessness and impassibility what they did was they didn't want to have God the Son suffering because they can't have that. That'd be awful. That'd be terrible. That'd be the worst thing ever in their minds. Well, but when you read the Bible, that guy's suffering all the time. So how do we, what are we going to do with that? Right. And so the answer was, well, let's put a soul in there. And so the soul, uh, so, so God, you've got God the Son uh, assuming a human soul and a human body. And so what Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, and several others would say is the soul serves as a wall to protect the sun from the grossness of human flesh. Mm -hmm. uh, I, think that's, I think that's a direct quote. Um, if, if not, it's, it's, a, it's my chapter somewhere, so you can find the direct quote. <laughs> so you've got, so they're throwing a soul there to, to do it. And, and then you've got this really kind of weird sort of view. So you've got this view where you've got God the sun, who's supposed to be the one doing all the stuff in the incarnation. But then you're like, well, what's the God son? What's the, you know, the perspective of God the sun? Well, he's in a state of pure undisturbed bliss because he's not suffering. Um, He's not undergoing succession because he's timeless. He's not changing anyway because he's immutable. Well, what about the the first person perspective of the soul, that human nature? Well, it's suffering. It's undergoing change. It's feeling hungry. Uh, it's undergoing temptations. They've got completely different experiences. And then the soul also uh, can pray to the divine mind and communicate to the divine mind. And so you're like, how is that? How is that one person? That doesn't look like one person anymore. And the hypostatic union is supposed to be these two natures united in a single one person, not two people. Ooh, I don't know. This doesn't look like one person anymore. This looks like two people because yeah. you got two minds, each with very different experiences, very different beliefs, doing very different things. I don't know. Uh, and so one of the questions in a very cheeky sort of way that I ask in the book is what is the difference between me and Jesus? Um, and so I run these kind of arguments about, well, I, I, Jesus is supposed to be incarnate. I'm not. Um, our experiences are very similar. They're both completely, utterly different from you know God the Son. God the Son's not really related to me on the classical story. Uh, and on the classical story, God the Son's not really related to his human nature either. And so I'm like, well, why is that guy incarnate and I'm not incarnate? Right. 
uh, I don't see how you're gonna get this get these things. So yeah, I don't know. Those are kind of some different kind of problems I try to lay out. But yeah, I, I don't know where where you want to go with the conversation. Okay. Um, well, I I'd like to get the solution. <laughs> no, sure. <laughs> okay, um, but no, seriously. Uh, well, let's see where you go with it because obviously we're talking about the the hypostatic union of of the divine uh, with with the human, the temporal with the atemporal um, in, in a classical model. But how does how does the open theist model? Um, provide a solution to the incarnation that the classic model doesn't. Sure. <clears throat> yeah, and I and I do need to clarify one thing because I misspoke, and uh, Ryan very gracefully uh, made that known to me. Uh, I do no, believe that the incarnation <laughs> involves intrinsic change as well. One of the difficulties I have when I'm trying to have a discussion with uh, another believer on timelessness is I want to just focus on timelessness, but the conversation quickly goes to immutability. Okay. And so yeah. I'll often say, you know, let's just assume that we're not talking about any intrinsic changes. So, you know, the divine nature is identical. Everything's the same. Let's just focus on the extrinsic change and its relation to temporality versus atemporality. And so I, I misspoke there. Um, you know, there's really no issues here with the incarnation, with, you know, the open theist or even the Molinist who's, you know, holds to the A theory of time and a ton of Molinists hold to an A theory of time. And so really, I think the, the significant piece here is that, you know, Richard Holland, who wrote God, Time and the Incarnation, um, he what he does in his book because his whole book really is on the incarnation and God in time, is he looks back throughout Christian history and he's like, okay, what did they do with this? And what he found was that they largely ignored it. Um, you know, who knows why, hmm. but I think the reality is, is that they either, you know, saw clearly or even intuitively recognized that this is going to be very difficult to um, make these two work together. And so I, I do think that Richard Holland's book and Ryan's book are essential reading on the topic of, of time and God, no, number one, and then number two, really looking at the incarnation. I, I feel confident, Josh, telling people that you have to choose between timelessness or the incarnation. You really can't have, uh, you really can't have both in this context. The incarnation, as understood and agreed upon by virtually all Christians, is that uh, a divine nature took on a human nature. And all of the terms that we use to describe this event and the hypostatic union are all times of are all terms of succession. And so you yeah. really just can't have you really can't have both. And so I think hopefully, <laughs> Christianity is going to go ahead and, and keep the incarnation and reject timelessness. Okay, so that's a that's a strong stance to take. I think that there's a good point to be made there, and I think that's probably a, kind of the suggestion that you're making and Richard Holland is making as well, that um, this problem has is, is historically been avoided. But, Ryan, do you see that as, as uh, kind of the two choices that you've got here? Um, you either have to get rid of the timelessness of God, or you have to accept the incarnation that there was, 
there was intrinsic and extrinsic change that took place within God at the incarnation. Because um, it seems like to me, um, there's there's an element of kind of what we would describe as um, a problem with the flesh to the point that God couldn't actually truly become human in every sense that we are human because there's some intrinsic problem with flesh. And if God were to, to, to become flesh like we are in every way, then he would, he would uh, in, in some sense, be sinful um, as the, uh, the flesh of, of what we humans are sinful. But that might be a step further than where we need to go uh, right now. Let's just see if we can identify um, that you either need to hang on to or get rid of timelessness if you're going to have a true incarnation. What would your answer be, Ryan? I, I want to say that, yeah, it really is incarnation or timelessness. I don't think you can have both of them. But I've got different friends who are, you know, wanting to defend the compatibility of the two. Uh, so Tim Tim Paul has two different books uh, on what he calls conciliar Christology, where he's trying to work out all, like all the fancy footwork you need to do in order to get a compatibility between the two. But when I've asked him in person about it, um, the one the sticking point for me is over the hypostatic union, because yeah. I want to know how do you get that union. And, and Tim says, well, it's an ineffable mystery um, because he's just trying to stick with this is what the councils are saying yeah. uh, and go from there. And and I'm like, well, See that, that, that's the very thing that I need to know. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. That. That's not good yeah. enough for me. Like at some point we've got to go, well, it, it can't just be a mystery when we're taking a stance on it. Like we're taking a mm-hmm. stance, but it's a mystery. And it's like, well, you can't tell me I'm wrong if you don't have, if you're just going to punt to mystery. Like to me, it, it does seem like, I don't know. It, it it's problematic. <laughs> I, so yeah, so I had this great experience where um, so Tim and his and his wife Faith were in St Andrews for uh, a little while because um, Faith had a had a postdoc research position there, and so I was able to get Tim to to teach in my class for a bit, and so we had on the, a day on the incarnation, and my students were just grilling him, and when they when they got to that point, they were like, "Well, now you can't just build everything off the mystery, <laughs> you know." And like and, and Tim's like, "I'm just telling you what the, I'm just trying to give you a consistent story of what." you know, how to have a logically consistent story of, of the councils. And they're like, but I want to know more. I want to know yeah. that bit right there. I want, and he's like, mystery is part of their story. And they're like, they, they didn't like it. Um, yeah. But Tim was, you know, able to be like, I'm just giving the logical story of how it's built off of that. I'm like, hmm. so, so yeah, so that would be something, I guess, if you could, uh, someone would push back and go, well, if you're asking how to get that, you can't get it. Um, I can give you the logical story built on top of that. But if that's yeah. what you're really getting at, and I'm like, well, but that is what I really want to get at. I really do want to know that. How do you get this personal union between the two natures and still have it a t- be a timeless, impassable, all those, all those things? Okay. I don't know. I don't think you can do it. Okay. So tell me, tell me, Ryan, how do you get, how do you have an atheria time within Molinism and how does that impact the incarnation with Molinism? Hmm. Uh, so an A theory, okay. So an A theory of time just says that tensed uh, facts are like part of the fundamental features of reality, uh, part of the fundamental story. So tensed facts like um, what was the case, what is the case, and what will be the case. And so there's something about the now, about the present, that has some sort of privileged status. But there's a bunch of different uh, like ontologies that are consistent with an A theory. So presentism is one of them. You could have a growing block where the past present equally exists. You could have um, a moving uh, spotlight where, like, you've got this eternal block of time, and then there's like this spotlight that's pointing out, like, like which one's the present. So you got a bunch of different options if you're an, an, an a theorist. Hmm. Um, 
if you're a Molinist, you well again, you, you could do all the things you want to do with it. So you could be a presentist like William Lane Craig and say um, there are certain tense facts about what will take place. Like once you know, God goes through all those steps of the different moments from natural knowledge to middle knowledge to free knowledge. And so once God gets the free knowledge, he gets the foreknowledge of this is what will be the case. Uh, and so you could still have your kind of presentist story, um, but certain truths about the future are going to have a determinate truth value. So what, what will, will do and what Ryan will do, um, uh, you know, those, the truth values of those propositions are set as either true or false. Uh, the actual existence of those events, well, they don't come into existence until they become present. And so that's kind of the way the Molinists would, would, would uh, tell the story. When it comes to the incarnation, uh, they would say a similar sort of thing. So once God says, looks at all the different timelines, and he's like, I like this one. This one's pretty cool. Uh, you know, God the Son, you okay with that? You're going to become incarnate? And he's like, Father, that sounds great. So let's do this one. Uh, and so then then they would set in place and all the truth values of like, this is how the, when the incarnation will take place. Um, this is when the Son will become incarnate. But that event won't exist until it becomes the present. I, and so that's, I guess that's kind of, I guess, how the, the Molinists would tell the story. Okay, well, let's get your take on it. Um, I, I think you've kind of already answered it, but do you see any problems with uh, with um, with the incarnation as it would be related? Because I mean, you've got an atheory of time with Molinism, but you would have a problem with the determinism side of it. That um, maybe I don't know. Um, where would you want to go in that side of the conversation? Well, not not all Molinists are atheists, um, mm-hmm. but the ones that are don't have an issue with the incarnation specifically uh, related to timelessness. So I, I think the the whole determinism debate is completely separate and not really related to the to the timelessness debate. And so, yeah, I, I m- most Molinists that I interact with uh, hold to an a theory, and so they don't have an issue here. Cool. Okay. Um, now let's see, is there anything else on the incarnation that we want to deal with? Did you guys want to talk about how, whether or not there is a fourth person of the Trinity added with uh, two, mi- two, two wills, two minds, two, two natures in the incarnation? Is, or, or is that something not really related? I don't see a fourth person of the Trinity. Uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of theologians will create one when they're trying to defend uh, certain attributes of God. Uh, but, you know, to me, a person uh, and, a, and a nature are not, you know, the, the exact same thing. And so we have one person with two natures. And obviously there's going to be some mystery to this, just like we can't fully comprehend the Trinity, but there's absolutely not... A fourth person so uh, there's one will and uh you know god god took on flesh he became a man and so exactly how that works we don't really know but it's still just it's it's the exact same person it's just now a person with a human nature ryan do you agree with that uh yeah so there's a there's a lot of fancy footwork I could do to try to like flesh out the story, but um, I don't think we have time for that. But yeah, so I, there's a book <laughs> called Christian Physicalism, question mark, um, edited by Josh Ferris and Mark Cortez. And so I've got a paper in there on the incarnation um, that I, where I try to flesh out like my own understanding of how I think you get an incarnation without having two people in God the Son and in, okay. in, in Jesus Christ. So yeah, if people cool. want to see details, that's where they can go. 
Okay, awesome. Okay, let's. So we're coming up on two hours. Um, that's. I think that'd be a pretty good timeline to kind of wrap up the ep- this episode. So let's let's hit on one more point, and I do want to give you guys in the audience a chance to call in. Now would be that time. You can either call in on that number on your screen eight one six eight six six zero zero two five, or you can join the live stream. Uh, some of you have done, or if you don't want to get your question in that way, just type in question in whatever uh, platform you're watching on, and we'll try to get your question in to either Will or Ryan. Um, but I do, I think this would be a good place to wrap up the episode in describing um, the relationship of, of time um, and God's knowledge, specifically related to 1 Peter 1-2, where it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Specifically, um, the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Uh, now, how would you guys take um, the uh, theory of time, everything that we've kind of discussed up to this point, and tie it together with First uh, Peter 1-2 as it's related to election and foreknowledge? And I, whoever wants to go first, I have at it, and then we'll just go to the next one and, and go from there. Great. Um, so, you know, f- I love pointing this out, but foreknowledge and predestination are temporal words. So foreknowledge means to know beforehand. And so if we're talking about an atemporal God, his entire existence is simultaneous. And there is no knowing something beforehand. There's no determining something beforehand uh, with the word predestination. And so I actually think foreknowledge fits in here quite well, which is to know beforehand. And there's a true beforehand in God's life. The question of election is a completely different topic, which is you know fun to talk about. I do hold to a corporate election, which a lot of you know Arminians and Molinists do, and that's a big you know issue with Calvinism. But anyway, yeah, I mean, I, I, I affirm and defend foreknowledge, and I do think true foreknowledge uh, requires uh, a God that's in time. And interestingly enough, there are some authors, they're escaping me right now, but I've got, I've got them, you know, uh, listed somewhere that have admitted that foreknowledge is essentially a figure of speech. And it's just trying to describe something to us that we can understand, but you know, they're at least being consistent with their uh, view of God being timeless. Okay. Um, Ryan, how would you answer that? Um, does God have foreknowledge? Uh, does he elect? Uh, what's going on here? God's got foreknowledge. Mm-hmm. There's election taking place, and it seems to be based off of this knowledge that he has beforehand. Um, how would mm-hmm. you deal with First Peter 1-2 as it's related to everything that we've built on up to this point? Well, I mean, Will's point is, I think, is excellent because, yeah, the, the words used are temporal words, and so then you have uh, to, to to mention some of the, the people that Will, maybe Will had in mind. So, like Eleanor Stump, for instance, and then Boethius. Um, I think Augustine does this as well. John Calvin. I mean, lots of people will just go, "Well, it's not literally a before," because then, then God wouldn't be timeless. And I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> so, how much scripture is really metaphorical? And and it's it seems like a strikingly large, if not almost every single thing in scripture becomes metaphorical. And at some point it's like, what is this possibly a metaphor for? Uh, because um, so different biblical scholars uh, like uh, like Terence uh, Fredham and others will say metaphors in scripture, even, even the metaphors in scripture, they have a grain to them. They have like a direction they're trying to push. 
and if you come up with a, a story of what's going on there that Kim goes against the grain of the metaphor, well, then you, you're going against scripture. Um, so things like before, I don't think that could be metaphorical. It doesn't sound very metaphorical. It sounds quite literal. But even if you do want to take it as metaphorical, then you're like, well, yeah, there's just no such thing as a before whatsoever. Then I'm like, I don't know what this is a metaphor hmm. for. It seems like you're going against the, even the metaphorical grain of, of what scripture is teaching. So, so yeah, I think, yeah, so I, th I think passages like that just demonstrate that the Bible just has zero understanding of God as timeless. I think it's, it's all the descriptions of biblical descriptions of God are temporal. Okay. All right, well, um, that's good. We've got one last point that I think that was brought up here that's related to what we just talked about with the Incarnation. I'll get your take on it, and then I think we can wrap it up unless somebody has a call or would like to join the live stream. This comes from uh, Thez Irvin, I guess. Maybe I'm saying that wrong. I don't know. But um, he says, The hypostatic union entails that Jesus had a soul because humans have souls. I wonder if he holds a similar Christology as William Lane Craig. Um, how would you how would you answer that? As it's, I, I know Ryan, you've written extensively on this, the different possibilities of how this uh, works out in the incarnation, and we didn't have time to get into all of it. But specifically with this guy's question in the hypostatic union of uh, the soul of Jesus, would you see would you see the human Jesus having a soul, a spirit, and uh, consciousness? Obviously, being a a, um, a dualist, you would have you would have um, the interaction of the spirit with the flesh. So how does that work with uh, with this with the William Lane Craig Christology? So so Craig's view, uh, I think it goes something like this. So to be a person, a human, okay, to be a person is to be a rational mind. To be a human person is to be a rational mind with a human body. Uh, well, how does uh, God the Son become? Uh, well, he's already a person because he already has a rational mind. Well, how does he become a human person? Well, he's just got to get a body. I mean, like, come on, there you go. Uh, and then now, how does he have a human soul? Well, by in virtue of being related to a human nature, he is a human soul. And so I'm like, that seems pretty cool. And it looks like it might be an historian, or not an historian, might be a Hollinarian. Uh, and Craig actually calls it a Neo-Apollinarian view. Uh, and I'm like, well, maybe, I don't know. Apollinarius actually thought there was more than a, a person is not just a, a rational soul in a body. I mean, he thought there was a rational soul and a, a spirit. And I don't know what the spirit's doing. But he thought there's this other thing going on there. So Craig's view isn't that close to exactly like Apollinarian's view. My view is similar to that, but it's, it's, um, I'm following a, a model that Andrew Loke has developed called a pre-conscious model where um, there's some more bells and whistles thrown in there that I don't have time to go into. Uh, but, but yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm closer to Andrew Loke's model than, than William and Craig's model. I see. Okay. Now, Will, you've, you've consistently said that um, God took on flesh, he became a human. Now, um, I'm not sure that I... Maybe I missed it. Maybe you said it. Maybe I missed it, though. Um, as it's related to the kind of the specifics of this question with the hypostatic union, um, did was there an additional soul in the human Jesus, or, or was it just merely um, the Son of God, God the Son, coming down and taking on, on flesh in the incarnation and not adding to himself another soul, uh, but obviously adding another nature, maybe without a, a human soul? Yeah, great question. I'm still trying to figure out if I'm a dichotomist or trichotomist. So the, these are difficult issues that take, uh, you know, really a lifetime of thought and research on. And I'm still, in, in terms of Jesus and the soul, I'm still working all that out. Yeah. Cool. Fair enough. 
Um, well, okay. Let's see. I know we've got a lot more that we we wanted to get to. Will, we didn't even... I, there was so much that I wanted to get to on, on your side of um, what, of the conversation with opiumtheism.org, specifically with aseity and um, conversations related to aseity and divine determinism and foreknowledge and Molinism and those sorts of things, which we kind of touched on real briefly, but we didn't get... We didn't get to um, dive into all of that as much as I, I think that we had in, our, in, in the notes, and that's totally fine. Um, but guys, I do I do want to give you the last word. Um, I think at two hours is a pretty good pretty good time to um, shut down this particular episode. But I do appreciate you guys coming on, and let me turn it over to you guys for the last word. Ryan, maybe you could go first, and then I'll turn it over to you, Will, and uh, see how you would like to leave the audience. Um, with everything that we've kind of mulled around in this episode and kind of wrap it up with one concluding remark, if possible. Uh, I, I just, yeah, yes. Yeah, so I, I guess I want to just echo what Will said is a lot of the questions that we've been looking at tonight, they take years of really careful study if you want to do them justice. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff related to God and time, like, I mean, that's been an ongoing project of mine for over 10 years now. Stuff related to freedom and foreknowledge, that's a small side project that I've done that I'm like, I don't feel like I've done it justice to really, you know, have a good say on the matter. So, uh, so yeah, these are these are all really complicated topics, and I'm glad that we can have a discussion about them in, in a friendly way and, and hopefully clarify some things. But, yeah, it's hard stuff, and it takes a lot of homework to do before you can really make up your mind. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for that. Dr. Mullins, you're welcome back anytime. Thanks again for coming on Talking Christianity. It's been a, it's been an awesome conversation. I've, I've been looking forward to this. And for the audience, you guys may not know, but um, I just had to get an apodectomy, I guess that's the word, get my appendix removed a couple days ago. And uh, um, so I'm not really all with it. I'm, that's probably why I'm fumbling over my words so much. And I told Ryan and Will before we got started, I'm like, guys, you get, you're going to have to carry the conversation, I think. And um, it's been fun to have this conversation as something that is a passion of mine because it's related to um, the knowledge of God, the incarnation. And really for me on a practical side, it's like, what's my interaction with God look like in my daily life and prayer and my walk with the Lord and my family and, and those sorts of things? Like, um, is, is God personal? Is, it, is he impersonal? Is it all just a script? Am I just an actor in a play? Like, how do these things work in real life? And uh, both of you guys have been really helpful for me in my journey to kind of grasping some of these concepts to the point that I can really mull it over and, and come to a conclusion about what I believe. Um, so thank you guys, both of you, for that. And Will, I do want to give you a chance to give concluding remarks. How would you leave our audience um, based off the conversation that we've had and uh, dealing with open theism and the timelessness of God and uh, uh, whether or not God is personal and, and those sorts of things? So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, who God is, is really central to almost any, you know, Christian doctrine. And so, you know, set, centering our studies on that and, and never giving up on trying to better understand uh, God's nature and who he is, is going to be critical. Um, I don't know how many people in your audience are familiar with Ryan Mullins, but if they're not, they will be. And I think that his book on timelessness, which is the end of the timeless God, is uh, essentially, if it's not already, will be essential reading. Yeah. Um, if you want to, you know, understand uh, all these different sides of the issue on timelessness. Um, just to warn everybody, you'll, you'll have sticker shock 
uh, <laughs> it's my, my understanding that uh, Ryan has no say on the price of the book, and so you'll have to take that up with Oxford. But uh, it's worth every penny, and uh, I'm thankful for Ryan and, and that book because it's it's moved the needle on the issue of timelessness yeah. for you know arguably the first time in, in centuries. So I agree. Definitely encourage people to read that book. That's good. Um, I totally agree with that. Um, go get that book if you get a chance, if you get a chance to, uh, The End of the Timeless God. And uh, your other book that just came out not too long ago, I think in August, um, was it, is it God and Emotion? Is that what it's called, Ryan? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And Cambridge actually made this one affordable. It's only 20 bucks. So yeah. 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 Thanks for that. We need to to send some letters to Cambridge to get the price down on the end of the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, but it would be nice. Yeah. Anyways, guys, thank you so much for coming on to Talking Christianity. You're welcome back anytime. Hopefully we can pick this up in the future and and, uh, see if we can uh, pick up where we left off at some point. So thank you, Will. Thank you, Ryan. Um, It's been a pleasure. Thanks. So, all right. Hey, I'm going to cut to closing scene here and... Uh, cool. See if we can give fill you in on what's coming up down the pipeline for the audience, and go from there. If it'll, it, it, it's going to switch scenes there. So give it just a second. Turn the volume down on that, and let me get this up. So, anyways, guys, this has been a good conversation to have. I really appreciate both Will and Ryan coming on to have this conversation on open theism. Uh, and the timelessness of God as it's related to foreknowledge and the incarnation. So hopefully that was helpful to you. Please feel free to write them and visit their website, opentheism.org for Will Duffy. And uh, you can, uh, I'd encourage you to listen to Ryan Mullen's podcast, The Reluctant Theologian, as well. If you didn't get a chance to last week, we had a debate between Stephen Avery and James Snap Jr. on Codex Sinaiticus, the world's oldest Bible, um, the thesis was the world's oldest Bible is a replica, Simonides the scribe. That was an excellent, excellent debate. Uh, guys, it went, it lasted three and a half hours. And um, there was just, there's so much information in there. And we really just barely kind of scratched the surface on on the depth of where that conversation can and should go. Um, that was, that was, it was a good one. So go back and listen to that if you get a chance to. But in two weeks, I'm going to have uh, Dr. Wagner, Brian Wagner on, and Drew McLeod. Drew McLeod from the Provisionist podcast. And we're going to talk about kind of what we talked about tonight, God time and theological ramifications. Brian Wagner holds to uh, dynamic omniscience, that perspective. Uh, it's similar to open theism. There's some, uh, there's some distinctions uh, between those two positions, but it's going to be a good conversation to have as well. Hopefully we'll be able to understand what those theological ramifications are as it's related to the Incarnation and specifically uh, the eternal decree and the fall of Adam and Eve in the beginning. And we'll go from there. But there were so many other things that I was working on um, that we were going to have coming through the pipeline, like Brian Abishano. Um, we were going to do an episode next week with that. But I promised my wife we've got so much going on in life right now. Uh, that I was going to cut back. I just picked two episodes that I want to do, and then I'm going to take a break from podcasting for a while. So I really wanted to have this one today um, with uh, Will Duffy and and Ryan Mullins, and I want to have that one with Brian Wagner and Drew McLeod. Everything else I'm shutting down, and maybe we'll come back to it eventually, like that debate on Lordship Salvation with Colt Perkins and a baptism debate with Kevin Hughes, and uh, then the Dale Tuggy and Edward Dalcour debate on the Trinity. 
and the triunity of God. And in and, and other episodes like that, but guys, I do appreciate you sticking with me. And uh, um, hopefully this has been a blessing to you. Feel free to stay in touch with me all you can. And I'll do the same online. But I'm, I'm going to step back after this next episode with Drew McLeod and uh, Brian Wagner and come back to it at some point down the line. But got more important things to focus on in life right now than a podcast. And even though this is my passion, I, this is my way to reach the world for the gospel and the truth of who, who God is and how, how you can have a relationship with him and spend eternity with God. So um, I'll, I'll come back to it. But anyways, guys, God bless. I hope, I hope you have a great day, a great evening. And if you're football fans, go Chiefs. Next week, we're going to take it home second year in a row. So talk to you later. God bless.